Genesis 1, verse 26 to the end of the chapter, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. This was the sixth day of the creation. Well, it's the most published book in history. Uh, In the last 50 years, the Bible, again, as it has done since printing presses were invented and they started counting how many books were published, uh, the Bible tops the list. Uh, They estimate that there have been 3.9 billion copies of the Bible that have been printed and published and distributed in the last 50 years. Uh, Second on the list was Mao's Little Red Book. Uh, It was really just one year where 82 million copies of... uh, 820 million copies of that were printed back in the 1960s. Third place is Harry Potter, which is a bit sad in a number of ways, but the Bible is clearly the book that tops the list. They estimate that the total number of Bibles published since the invention of the mechanical printing press in the 1400s would be somewhere in excess of six billion copies. And in fact, the first book printed on a mechanical printing press was a Bible, uh, the Gutenberg Bible, which uh, there are still copies of it around today. Guinness Book of World Records estimates that the Bible has been translated into more than 2,000 languages. We know how important and significant this book is. We even go so far as to call it God's Word. But for a lot of people, the Bible remains a bit of a mystery. They're not exactly sure how you go about reading it. And sometimes they can find it a bit hard to actually make sense of what the Bible is saying. There are even plenty of people in churches who are not altogether clear about how you're supposed to read the Bible. And because of that, the Bible is very often misunderstood or misread. Let me give you a couple of examples of how that might happen today. Some people kind of view the Bible as a bit of a thought for the day. Um, Some people see it as just a collection of helpful thoughts. You just pluck one out at random, find one that you like and dwell on that one for the day. Find that thought for the day, like those desk calendars that have that quote for the day for you. Now, while I want to say those thought for the days can be helpful, that's not the best way to understand the message of the Bible. Other people view the Bible as just a list of moral lessons that it doesn't matter where you open it up, you find the story and try and figure out what the moral is. That's 
treating it a little bit like Aesop's fables, that there's a story, you just need to figure out the moral and then that can be something you can apply to your life. Now again, I don't want to dismiss that idea completely, but that's not the best way for us to be looking at the Bible. There are many people who don't realise that the Bible has really just one story that runs from beginning to end, one main idea that runs through the passages of the Bible that, that starts here in Genesis that we're looking at this morning and finishes in the book of Revelation right at the very end of the Bible. The Bible outlines God's plan and purpose for the world that we live in. The Bible is a book that clearly tells us what God is like and it clearly tells us what our world is like and why our world is the way that it is. It's a book that clearly tells us what we are like. And above all, it's a book that tells us how it is that we are to respond to God, how it is that we are to live in a relationship with Him, with the God and Creator of the universe. And it does all of that by telling us how God is at work in this world. It's a book that has a very clear beginning, God's creation and that Garden of Eden story. And it's a book that has a very clear end. God gathered together with his people in what we call heaven. A few years ago, my father-in-law lived up on the central coast. And um, I don't know if you know that area, the Brisbane Waters area just used to confuse the life out of me every time we went there. I could never figure out where things were because you've got all of these waterways that run around all over the place and I could never figure out whether you needed to go this way or that way to get to the place that we were supposed to be going to. Not until I saw this map did I actually understand where he lived and where everything else was in relation. So it's when you see the overview of the whole thing then it all becomes quite clear. You know how to get from one place to another. You know where you're going. You know where the story is heading. And I think the same is true for the Bible. What I'm hoping is over these next few weeks, we're going to get that big overview picture of the Bible. And that as we understand the overview picture, then we'll be able to see where the smaller parts of the story fit in. But understanding the Bible isn't just a matter of understanding the story. See, this is a book that ought to have a profound influence on your life. This is a book that should change you, not just once, but it should be continuing to change you. This is what Paul says when he writes to Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of a church and, and he was encouraging him to make sure that he is teaching what the Bible says. But this is what he says. As for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the book that tells you how you can be saved, how you can be made right with God. And this is the book that equips you to live the life that God wants you to live, the life that God created you to live. So we're beginning this overview this morning, going back to those very opening two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. 
here are some chapters of the Bible that deal with some of the most profound questions that we can ask about who we are and where we fit into this world. And looking at these questions or looking at these passages, you need to make sure that you're asking the right question. I know I've told this story before, but I'll I'll tell it again. There was a young boy who went to see his dad one afternoon when he got home from school and he said to him, Daddy, where did I come from? And the dad took the deep breath because he knew it was time to sit down and have that chat with his son about when a mummy and a daddy really love each other, you know how it goes, I won't fill in all of the details. So he began to tell the story and the, 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 st- the son was just looking more and more stunned as the story went on. And the father thought he was doing a pretty good job with the explanation. And then eventually after the father had said everything that he could think of to answer that question, he said, so why the sudden interest in knowing where you've come from? And the boy, with a very stunned look on his face, said, well, we've got a new boy in our class and he's from Melbourne and I'm just wondering where I came from. (laughs) Now, when it comes to the opening chapters here in Genesis, you need to make sure that you're asking the right questions. These chapters are not going to tell you absolutely everything about the creation of the world. There are 800 words here to talk about how creation came into existence. The manual for explaining how my television works has about 10 times that number of words just to explain how the TV works. So 800 words is not going to tell us everything about the creation of this world, but it is going to tell us the important things. And it's not too hard to see what the important things are. You really only need to look at the passage. So the very first question that we need to ask is, who made the world? And there's an emphatic answer in this chapter, in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. It is God who made the world. That phrase gets repeated nine times. And God said. God speaks and creation comes into existence. Exactly how that happens, we don't know. And the Bible passage doesn't intend to explain that to us. It just says that God speaks and creation springs into existence. At the time that this Genesis account was written, there were a whole range of religions around where the people of Israel were that gave explanations about how the world came about, why the world is the way that it is. All the other religions had their own creation stories. And most of those creation stories involved battles between uh, gods or lesser gods and and the, the creation came about as a result of chaos or struggles between the gods. But you don't see any of that in Genesis chapter 1, do you? In fact, you see the very opposite. It's almost effortless the way that God creates. God speaks and things happen. That never happened in my household when my kids were growing up. I spoke, and then I spoke again, and then I spoke one more time, and then I yelled, and then I possibly even started throwing things in order to make things happen. But here, God speaks, and creation springs into existence. There are no battles, there's no conflict, there's no struggle taking place here. There are no other gods competing with the creator God. There is one God who creates by his word. And then the next question really needs to be, well, what does this passage tell us about the world? Well, it tells us a couple of very important things. 
This is a very ordered world. The common view that people often have of the world is that it's come about by chance or that it's a little bit on the haphazard side, that it's just a bit of a fluke that things are the way that they are. But Genesis 1 and 2 wants to tell us about a very ordered and a very structured world. It didn't come about by random chance. Creation was a purposeful act on God's part. But it also tells us that this is a good world. There is no mistaking it that God says that this is how things will be. Things come about just as he has intended. And seven times in the passage we're told, God says that it's good. Because it's exactly how he intended it to be. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31. God says it's good. And as if to put the icing on the cake, the last verse there, chapter 1, verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. But the final question that you need to ask is, what's our place in this world that God has created? First time I went to South America, uh, I, I took around about 350 digital photos while I was over there, just snapped away at anything that seemed to move or that took my attention. But if you wanted to know what I thought was the most important or the best thing about that trip to South America, you'd only need to look through the digital photos to see. See, there was one day where more than a quarter of the photos that I took were taken on just one day in just one place. And it was here at Machu Picchu. I mean, it's just stunning. It's unbelievable. So there's no questioning what I thought was the most important thing on the trip that I did. It was this one-day visit to this ancient ruin of Machu Picchu. And a similar thing is true when you look through these opening chapters of Genesis. What does the writer of Genesis 1 think is the most important thing to describe? Well, it's the creation of the man and the woman. A quarter of this whole chapter is devoted to talking about the creation of the man and the woman. And as you can see, the man and the woman are clearly part of the creation, but they're also separate from the creation. They're different from the rest of the creation. And have a look at what it says, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds, of the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. It's the people, the man and the woman alone, that are created to be in God's image. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are created to be in God's image? Well, I think there's a couple of obvious things that come out of the Bible passage. I mean, the first thing is that we are created to rule over the creation. See, what Genesis chapter 1 makes abundantly clear is that God is the creator of all things. This is his world. He rules over it. But we reflect God's image because he places us in this world with the responsibility of ruling over things. I mean, it's clearly God's world. He created it. He spoke and it came into existence. But he says that the man and the woman will be the ones who have the responsibility to rule over the creation. 
Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. I think it's pretty obvious that our ruling is part of how we reflect God's image in this world. But there's another thing that's a little more complicated. I think our male and femaleness also reflects the image of God. Go back to verse 26. Not sure if you've noticed this before, but it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. How do you have God singular saying, Make make humans in our likeness? What does he mean by that? And then verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Those plural and singular, the way it seems to move like that seems very unusual. What's the us-ness of God that we reflect in this world? Well, I think the us is really a reference to the Trinity. See, we understand from the Bible that God is three in one, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. There are relationships that exist within the Godhead and the male and femaleness of us as human beings will reflect that. Flip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and look at what it says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. In the same way that we understand God to be three and one at the same time, the male and femaleness of human beings will reflect something about God because a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one. Our personal relationships are intended to reflect God's character. But it's more than that. We're designed for a relationship with God as well. God speaks with the man and the woman. God works with the man and the woman. We're designed to know God in a way that other parts of creation won't know God personally. So the God of the Bible is not some faceless, detached being who's somewhere off there, cut off and separated from the creation. The God who created us created us personally and created us to know him. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, say our Father in heaven. That's the closeness of the relationship that we and we alone out of all of creation are intended to have with God. Well, that's the impressive opening to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Now, I've no doubt that we haven't covered all of the stuff that's in there. There's still way more that could be said. But I have no doubt what the writer expects us to do with this information. He expects us to be in awe of God. I mean, that's what happens when you start moving on to the other parts of the Bible. Whenever they reflect on creation and God creating the world, it's to be in awe of what it is that God has done. Have a look, this is from Psalm 148. Look at what the writer says. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the highest heights, in in the heights above, praise him all his angels, praise him all his heavenly hosts, praise him sun, moon, praise him all you shining stars, praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the sky. 
Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that they will never pass away. God deserves to be praised because he's the one who brought all of this into existence. Every time you see that stunning sunset or that beautiful scenery, thank God for what it is that he's given you to look at. And when you turn to the pages of Revelation, you get a glimpse of why we should be thanking God as well. There's this picture in Revelation chapter 4 where they're all sitting around in heaven praising God. And this is what it says. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they lay their crowns before him, before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. If for no other reason... God is deserving of our praise because he's the one that made this world. And to look at it from the other side, how arrogant would it be to think that you can live in this world and ignore the God who created all this? God deserves our honour and our respect simply for that fact that he created this. I mean, there's no escaping it from the pages of the Bible. God created this world and we are answerable to him. But one last thing that we just need to see before we move on next week to the next part of the story. There's something happening just below the surface that we don't actually see when we're reading Genesis or we don't see clearly but we see it later when we read through the pages of scripture. In Colossians, Paul says this about Jesus. He's the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the one through whom this world was made. Jesus is the one for whom this world was made. It is Jesus that God expects that we will acknowledge as the king and ruler of all things. It's Jesus that we will ultimately be answerable to on that last day. We have been, we have been made to know Jesus and to acknowledge him as the ruler of all things.